Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to the Minnesota Chiefs Fan Podcast. I am your host, Minnesota Chiefs Fan, or if you prefer to call me by my actual name, Seth Kaiser. It's great to have you back. If you're a first-time listener, this is a pretty much all Chiefs, all the time podcast where we try to go a little bit deeper than what you're going to see in your standard articles or even standard podcasts. I'm a, I'm a film reviewer slash columnist slash I'm not sure what at Arrowhead Pride, and the vast majority of my work involves analyzing film, and I spend quite a bit of time, much more than is really healthy, looking at all 22 film of the Chiefs, and so I try to bring some of the information that I'm able to get there and bring that here. And so with that in mind, we have a lot to talk about today. It's a big week. Um, the Chiefs brought on Brett Veach. We're going to talk about that, and I'm going to discuss a little bit of uh, some of the thoughts that I have regarding him, some of the good things and some of the bad things I've, I've heard people have to say about that. And then we're going to talk about Chris Conley quite a bit. And uh, I have a film review on him coming up at Arrowhead Pride in the next couple days here, in which I went back and watched five games and watched every snap and every route he ran and some of the his run blocking snaps on all 22. And I've got some thoughts I'd like to share on Chris Conley. He's going to be an important player this year with Jeremy Macklin gone. I want to talk about him a bit. And additionally, in talking about Chris Conley, I'm also going to talk about what goes into reviewing wide receivers in general and why it's important to review the film rather than just saying, oh, receiver X had 600 yards last year, so we know he's a 600-yard receiver, etc. I'll talk a little bit about the process there and the importance of figuring out the context with everything with wide receivers. It's arguably the most dependent position in the NFL. We'll get into that. Additionally, I'm going to try, like I said, I'm going to try to fit a lot into this show. We're going to talk about Patrick Mahomes finally. I had a few mailbag questions regarding him, and I think it's time we finally talk about Pat Mahomes, what my expectations are for him, and why I think he could start a lot sooner than a lot of people think. Um, And so we'll talk about that. And then finally, after we do all that, we'll take some mailbag questions that you guys are kind enough to send them to me on Twitter. If you don't already, you can follow me at Real MN Chiefs fan, you know, real Minnesota Chiefs fan. Um, and for any of the work that I do, you can find that on Arrowhead Pride. I would be stunned if you're listening to this and you haven't seen any of that already. But, you know, I've got to uh, I've got to do the whole plug my other work thing. So moving right into it, um, Brett Veach, the, the Chiefs hired a general manager. It's the guy that pretty much everyone expected. I didn't really talk to anyone that thought it was going to be someone else. He was kind of the guy from the Um, get-go. From a personal opinion, I'm happy about this for a variety of reasons, one of which is the obvious internal consistency that it brings. You're going to be able to keep the scouting staff largely intact. You've got a guy who's already been part of the vision of the roster that they've built already, which has been an impressive roster, and that's a big deal. Continuity is a big deal. It's going to lead to the least amount of overhaul among a staff that's done a really good job. And the problem with bringing in a new guy is they generally want to bring in their own people. And so, you know, I've seen a lot of national NFL writers and people that talk about the NFL talk about the Chiefs as though they're having some kind of front office disarray. Honestly, by hiring Veach, they kind of avoid that. There's really not going to be a big, a big turnover. You, you, you promote the guy from within that you know can scout. And that's the second thing that I really like about this. Everything I've read on Brett Veach, and there's some stuff on Arrowhead Pride. Um, Therese Paler wrote something that was real good about him. There was a profile on him at KCChiefs.com. Everything I've seen about him, as far as a scout goes, uh, Matt Miller's talked about him quite a bit. Um, various other NFL analysts have talked about him as a very, very good talent scout. Um, that I think Matt Miller described him as a scout scout. Therese Paler said that, you know, on the inside, he has never heard someone have a negative thing to say about Veach. And he said that's incredibly rare. So everything I've heard about him is that he's a very good scout. 
the stories that people tell are that he was the first guy to really pound the table with the Eagles for Fletcher Cox. He was the guy to really pound the table for Deshaun Jackson. He was the guy to pound the table for Deshaun McCoy. And the reason I like the fact that he was the guy that really, well, that tells me a couple things. One, the phrase pound the table and some of the stories when you hear about LaShawn McCoy, apparently he just hassled Andy Reid to death about this guy. Anytime he had a couple spare minutes, he had Brett Beach in his ear saying, hey, hey, I want you to come look at the film with this guy, this LaShawn McCoy. He can play. Don't listen to anyone else. This guy can play. What that tells me is he's a guy who's willing to have his voice be heard. And that alleviates some of the concerns some people have that they're just going to bring on Andy Reid yes man. Because he's clearly willing to say, this is my opinion, this is who I think can play. So that's one thing, and we'll come back to that in a second. The other thing I like, especially with Deshaun Jackson and Deshaun McCoy, these were not perfect prospects. McCoy, there were questions about him uh, with regards to his ability to run between the tackles, his size. You've heard it all with regards to guys who aren't, you know, 230 pounds. He wasn't considered maybe a surefire thing. But Beach saw past that. He saw in his film the traits that would require, that are required to be successful at the NFL level. And Beach saw that. Same with Deshaun Jackson. Deshaun Jackson, we look at him now, we're like, yeah, he's a real good receiver. I mean, he's been good in the NFL for years and years and years. Very good. But you got to remember, coming out, a lot of people are not sold on him. Well, he's too small. He's, he's not going to be able to hold up injury-wise in the league. He's not a very good route runner. He just He's not going to be able to make it. But Veach saw past that. And again, what I like is, it, you know, anyone could look at the film of, say, you know, Aaron Donald when he was in college and say, yeah, you got to draft that guy. That guy's a freak. That's easy. What's hard is having imperfect prospects and saying, okay, but what can they do? And projecting that to be successful at the NFL level. And that's what he did with McCoy and with Jackson. Now, Fletcher Cox was considered a little more, he, you know, he was a good prospect. But at the same time, a lot of the reason why his stock rose was late because of the combine and all that stuff. And I like the fact that he recognized a genuine superstar along the defensive line. He was the guy saying, no, this guy's our star. And that was a good draft. And he found the guy. Fletcher Cox is one of the best players from that draft. And so I like that Veach has a history of finding good talent. Um, additionally, by promoting from within, you know that some of the talent the Chiefs have brought in have been because of Veach. Do we know who? No, we don't. The Chiefs are very big on, oh, this was a team effort, that kind of stuff. John Dorsey himself always said that. It was a team thing. It was the whole group, the whole scouting department. Veach was a part of that. He might have been the guy pounding the table for Chris Jones or Tyreek Hill or Travis Kelsey or any of these guys that they've been successful with. I like that they're keeping a guy who's got a good eye for talent because that's what they're going to miss most with John Dorsey. Hopefully he can replace 90% of that at least, but be better with contracts and be better with communication and better with personnel management and money management. That would be a dream scenario because if that happened, they would actually end up overall better than they were. Um, one interesting question I got, and I'm going to do a mailbag at the end, but some of these mailbag questions that I get kind of coincide with the topics I have. So I'm going to try to sprinkle them in throughout. I had Don Beal on Twitter at Don Beal 32 ask me, how different will this roster look with Veach at the helm? The short answer is we don't know. Um, the slightly longer answer is it'll likely look fairly similar given that he is going to be part of the same overall culture and the same overall theme that the Chiefs have tried to build very successfully over the last four years. And one thing to think about, and I had a, a, a friend of mine on Twitter, uh, Nathan, mentioned this to me, and I've seen it myself. I've seen it in other places. One thing, it's not like there's a real secret sauce with what Dorsey did. He really loved spark scores, as in you know their athleticism traits, and he really loved good senior bowl performers from small schools. Those are two things. If, if a guy had a good spark score, you knew John Dorsey was looking at him. If a guy was a small school guy that people were kind of not sure about, but he dominated at the senior bowl, like a, like a Tano Passignon or an Eric Fisher, or I mean, really, I could go on and on. Um, so I won't. Um, you knew John Dorsey might take a look at him. Okay. And so that part won't be too tough to, dif to duplicate. I think the roster will look fairly similar. How we'll know if 
this really is some kind of, oh, it's all Andy Reid and Veach is just a puppet, we'll start seeing moves that are really similar to what we saw on the Eagles in Andy's last days. I really hope we don't see that because Andy himself has come forward and said, I stunk at it. I was terrible at being a coach and GM. So I'm not too worried about that. I've seen Andy Reid alter his offense enough to figure that he knows to change something that doesn't work. And so, you know, a lot of people are concerned about whether or not this is a puppet hiring. I guess when you see how involved Clark Hunt has been and when you peel back the curtain a little bit and uh, Sam Mellinger with the KC Star wrote a great article on this. We've seen a little more now over the course of the last year that Clark Hunt is more involved than we thought. He's not, not as in making football decisions, but he knows what's going on. One quote that I saw in a really good article, it was either Sam's or it was on the MMQB uh, with Sports Illustrated, when they said that there were employees with the Chiefs who they knew that there were some problems with a few of the things Dorsey was doing. But what surprised them was that Clark Hunt knew about it. And that is a good thing. That tells me a boss that is plugged in. And Clark Hunt initially, when he first came on board, he had a general manager that just reported to him. He fired that guy, brought in Scott Pioli. Scott Pioli just reported to him. Then you had all these issues with Todd Haley. And so Todd Haley got fired, probably got chucked under the bus by Pioli, really. Um, And then we hired on Romeo Cornell. Y'all know how that ended. It's a terrible season. And then when Hunt decided to fire Pioli and start fresh, instead of just having one guy report to him, he said, no, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm having the GM report to me and the coach report to me separately. And that's what he did with Dorsey and Reed. And I think it was successful. And the reason that's a good thing with how things are going to go down now is that Veach is going to have private meetings with Clark Hunt that Andy's not going to have anything to do with. It's pretty hard to have a puppet that goes directly over your head to your boss all the time. That's tough. And so I'm not saying it's impossible. Maybe Andy Reid really will have that tight of control on Veach, but I doubt it. Given that Clark Hunt clearly wants to foster a winning franchise. And anyone who says otherwise, I'm sorry, you got to just look at the way he's allowed his team to be run. It used to be, oh, Clark's too cheap. Well, now it's like, oh no, they're at the salary cap. They spend too much. Clark has gone out and he's gotten the best candidates every time he's gone out. Scott Pioli was a red-hot GM candidate. Clark Hunt, got, Clark Hunt got him. John Dorsey was a red-hot GM candidate. Clark Hunt got him. Veach is widely respected, and at this time, he was the best candidate of anyone that I heard about. He was clearly the best candidate. Clark has shown he cares about building a winning franchise, and the way to do that is to make sure that it's not just the Andy Reid show. And so I really like the hiring. I think it promotes continuity. I think Veach, from everything I've heard, is a good eye for talent. And I think we're going to see some good things moving forward. So that, 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 that's what I have to say about Veach. And now I want to move into the, the film review that I have coming up, which is uh, Chris Conley. Um, like I said, I, I reviewed every snap of his for five games. And he's an interesting player. And he's got some traits that I think could be valuable. He's got some weaknesses that I think might limit his ceiling. But before I talk about Conley, I uh, I want to talk a little bit about film review for wide receivers. Um, it's like I said earlier, it, it might be the most dependent position in the NFL. It might be the position that the most depends on everyone else doing their job in order for a wide receiver to put up stats and to be productive. And that's just easy when you think about it. If the offensive line doesn't do their job and the quarterback gets sacked, it doesn't matter if the wide receiver got open. If the quarterback doesn't do his job and see the wide receiver open, it doesn't matter if the wide receiver got open. If the quarterback throws an inaccurate pass, it doesn't matter if the wide receiver got open. So basically, the offensive line and the quarterback – they have to do their job for the wide receiver to be able to do his. And so he's very dependent on whether everyone else does their job right. And because of that, looking at stats isn't always going to be accurate. Um, I think a, a good example of that would be the playoff game uh, against Pittsburgh. Tyree Kill was kind of quiet that game. And afterwards, I heard a few people talk, well, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers figured him out. They shut him down. And then as more time went by, a lot, you know, a few all 22 gifts came out, some of them by me, some of them by others, of Tyree Kill flying down the field wide open. And a couple of them would have been for six had he been found. 
and you realize, wow, imagine if both of those times everyone else had done their job. Now, all of a sudden, Tyreek Hill has another 120 yards and two touchdowns, and we're talking about him being a superstar. And so you just can't rely on stats for these things. And additionally, when you, even if you, like, say, review you know, the targets that they had and target percentage and catch percentage, that only tells you about a small subset of their snaps. So the only thing that you can really do is go back and review every snap they take and watch. Or watch how they do on every single snap, even when they don't see the ball thrown their way. And so what I do is I watch every 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 single snap and I watch every single route, and then I track wins, losses, and neutral plays. A win is getting separation, usually against man coverage, but if they do a noticeably good job finding an open hole in a zone coverage and it's not just schemed open for them, I'll reward them with a win there too. A loss is when you're in man coverage and you get blanketed. Not necessarily blanketed, but you just don't gain real separation, NFL-level separation in the corner. A neutral play can be a variety of things. It might be because the wide receiver just didn't have anything to do. Um, like a, uh, you know, if, if the wide receiver's role is as a decoy go route, which the more you watch film, the more you can identify those when they're just decoys. That's not really a win or a loss. Their job is to just draw the defense with them. Or, you know, a play where the wide receiver is running one of those run pass options, where they don't really run a route. They just stand there, turn sideways, and the ball is thrown to them. Sure, they got a catch, and hey, maybe they took it 90 for a touchdown, but that's not really a route running win. And that's another reason why stats just aren't reliable. Imagine if a receiver caught six of those in a game for, you know, 70 yards. And people could say, oh, man, he must have been getting open that game. It's like, well, no, the offense schemed him open. And so when the offense schemes someone's open, what that means is the route combination, the, the routes that other receivers are running, force the secondary to make choices and abandon certain players. And Andy Reid is fantastic at this. If you ever have a chance to really look at all 22 film, or even when you're watching live, if you can, it's kind of hard when you're watching live just because you kind of need to be able to rewind and pause. Against zone coverage, Reed's route schemes are really good at forcing safeties and linebackers in zone coverage to make tough choices. And they've got to leave one guy open or they're going to leave another guy open. He's really good at exploiting the holes in various coverages. Reed clearly knows exactly where defenders are going to be in pretty much every zone. But the thing with that with regards to win-loss and neutral, if a wide receiver just runs the route that he's told to run, and it, he's open by virtue of the route combination being a winner, that's not really him doing it. So I, I, I make that a neutral play. I also track how many catchable targets they've had. I don't count targets that were the ball was thrown away at their feet or sailed 10 yards over their head. Um, and then how many catches and how many drops. And so I, I do all this to try to figure out not the, the production necessarily of the wide receiver, but his traits. What I mean by that is there are a few really important traits that I look at in a wide receiver. Um, and so the, 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 these four traits, it's the same thing that I looked at with regards to uh, Tyreek Hill. And th those, those four traits are, are as follows. Well, we can really even call it five traits. Um, the first, and I treat them as a package deal. Can you get separation or can you win at the catch point? And so are you a Antonio Brown and you can get separation constantly? Or are you a uh, DeAndre Hopkins and you can win at the catch point? In order to be a good NFL wide receiver, you have to be able to do one of those two things. You absolutely have to. Um, you know, Brandon Marshall doesn't really separate from anyone, but he's really good at winning at the catch point. When, even when he's not open, he's open. Um, certain other guys, they're not really particularly good at uh, winning on a contested catch, but they're very good at creating separation. You get a lot of smaller, quicker receivers like that. So that's the first trait. That's the you must be this high to ride the roller coaster pair of traits. You've got to be able to either create separation or win at the catch point. And it's important to remember that one isn't necessarily better than the other. I prefer guys that can do both, obviously. That's better if you can do both. But if you are elite at winning at the catch point, like say Mike Evans, 
you can be a very, 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 very good receiver, even though you're not creating separation. One thing I've had people tell me is, oh, unless you get separation, you're not a good receiver. That's just not true. It might be tough to be an absolutely elite, great receiver without it, but if you are good enough at the catch point, that will carry you to being a very good receiver. Again, like Mike Evans, because coaches can scheme you into opportunities. And if you're able to just win every time the ball is thrown your way, it doesn't matter what the coverage is like. And so that's the first thing, separation or the ability to win at the catch point. The second thing is just hands. And that's pretty simple. You got to be able to catch the ball. Um, and that's something that you can really see when you watch film, not just how many drops did they have, but how many almost drops did they have? And this is kind of related to winning at the catch point. If you're constantly double clutching the ball, kind of like Dwayne Bowe used to on the simpler catches, that means you're going to have a tough time consistently catching the ball. You might have one year where you didn't have a ton of drops, but the next year you're going to. And so hands is the second thing. The third thing, and this is especially for faster wide receivers, the ability to track the ball in the air is something I watch. And what that means is when you've got a quarterback throwing the ball, say, you know, 20 yards past the line of scrimmage or even 15 yards past the line of scrimmage, you have to remember that ball is traveling 20, 25 yards in the air or more. And rarely is the throw going to be perfect. Yes, NFL quarterbacks are good, but it is really, really, really hard to hit a moving target while throwing the ball on a rope when they're 25, 30, 40 yards away. It's just a tough thing to do, even for an NFL quarterback. And so what you need in a wide receiver, especially a deep threat, is the ability to maintain their speed while looking over their shoulder at where the ball is, figure out the trajectory, and get to the ball. When in the, the classic example I would give of this would be um, those of you who watched the Chiefs in preseason when Tyree Kill had a, I think it was against the Bears, he Nick Foles threw him a deep ball and was about 20 yards short of where it should have been. So Hill had to actually stop, completely reverse course, come back and snag the ball. And the defensive, the defensive player fell down trying to do the same thing because it's hard. It's crazy hard to do. And that's why there are so few genuinely great deep threats, even though there's a lot of fast guys in the NFL. Not to pick on him, but Albert Wilson is a guy who's got decent deep speed and can get behind defenses, but he doesn't seem to adjust to the ball being in the air. And what happens then is it's got to be a great throw. Sometimes even a good one's not good enough, or they're not going to come down to, with it, or even an average throw, because really you're rarely going to see perfect throws 30 or 40 yards down the field. So the ability to track the ball in the air is just absolutely crucial. And that's something that I look for as well. Uh, another trait that most wide receivers should have is the ability to handle physical coverage. That's what separates college receivers from NFL receivers. Um, the ability to either be quick enough to keep a press from touching you or strong enough to get their hands off you and get into your route. And the final thing that I look at is their ability with yards after catch. Um, how, what's their vision like? Are they quick enough to avoid tacklers or strong enough to shape tacklers? These are all things that you just can't figure out by looking at a stat sheet. You want to figure out how is someone winning. And so that brings me to talk about Chris Conley a little bit. Um, again, the full film review is going to come out on Arrowhead Pride here in the next couple days. I mean, depending on when this gets uh, set up, might even be today. Who knows? Um and that'll have a little more of the stats, like the wins, losses, neutrals. I'm not going to sit here and read stats to you. I'm just going to give you some general impressions here as kind of a preview. Because, I mean, really, what kind of person would I be if I didn't, you know, save a little bit for the article? So I set out to review Chris Conley, not really sure what to expect. He, he had a better second year than he did rookie season. He looked better out there by just the eyeball test during games. But, you know, it's not like he lit the world on fire stats-wise. And, um, you know, so it, it, that's where it becomes important to say what to look at the film and see and say, well, is this because he wasn't getting open? Is it because he wasn't doing a good job or was he just not getting the ball? And one thing that I noticed is that pretty consistently Conley, I'm trying and to I could probably remember only a handful of plays where Conley appeared to be legitimately the first read. Um, and that's just, I think, is the nature of the way the Chiefs offense was set up. Travis Kelsey or Jeremy Macklin or Tyree Kill or one of the running backs or that kind of were often the first read. 
the the special packaged plays that Reed did that you know you know where Demetrius Harris is the featured guy or Ross Travis or someone those robbed Conley of targets too. Conley just didn't have a ton of snaps where he seemed like the primary read, and so that was something I noticed right away. Um, with regards to what Conley does and doesn't do well, he um. Well, let's talk about his weaknesses first because, you know, then we can get those out of the way. He uh, he tends to, how do I say this? While his footwork isn't terrible, Conley's just not quick enough to achieve separation a lot more than I'm comfortable with, at least based on the five games that I watched. Um, it varies depending on the corner, but generally speaking, he's a strider. And so he just doesn't get started and stopped all that quickly. Now, there are times where on quick comeback routes, he can stop fairly quickly. But gaining speed is not something that he does well. It takes him a little bit to pick up steam. And because of that, he's just not really successful on routes that require multiple moves or a really quick change in direction early in his route. It's just not something he does well. And that's a bit of a concern. He also tends to round out his routes a little bit. His footwork just isn't as clean as you'd like. And so those are both fairly significant issues that I think, especially his lack of quickness, I think could limit his ceiling as a receiver. Um, it's one reason, you know, you're going to be wondering in a couple minutes when I talk about what he does well, well, why isn't he going to be a great receiver? I think his lack of overall quickness is going to create a real problem for him because it just means that sometimes corners can just blanket him and there's nothing he can do about it. Um, with regards to what he does well, and like I said, you know, so he can't separate. So then you ask yourself, well, can he win at the catch point? Yes. That's what, that's where Chris Conley wins. He is able to, and if you look at my, my Twitter timeline, you'll see multiple gifts of this, of him just snatching the ball out of the air. He's got very strong hands, very strong hands despite a defender being all over him and he brings it in and he controls his feet and he makes the catch. He had multiple sideline catches like that last year. He had multiple catches where he got hit immediately afterward. He really worked on his hands. It seemed like, cause in his rookie year, he had a few drops that surprised me. Um, he wins at the catch point. He's a, he, he's not, you know, a giant receiver, but he, he's got decent height. And he also, he's got arms that are, give or take, 9,000 feet long. And that, and he can jump like he's jumping on a trampoline. It's unbelievable. And so he's able to win at the catch point. That's where he really wins. With regards to his route running, he doesn't always lose on that. Just because he doesn't have quickness doesn't mean he doesn't separate. But what was interesting to me, and a huge difference between his rookie year and his second year, is how physical he was running his routes. He it seems, prefers press coverage because that means that he can get his hands on the corner, which is kind of counterintuitive. And again, I'll elaborate more on this in the article, but he is just very, he's got long arms again, and he seems very strong. Um, jams don't bother him that much. And more often than not, he was able to affect the corner more than the corner could affect him. And I'll, again, I'll write more about that in the, in, in, in the article, but it was a really impressive trait that I'm hoping he worked on and honed this offseason. He looked maybe not quite as quick as his rookie year. He clearly had thickened up a little bit. And to me, he, he struggled so much with physical coverage his rookie year that he had to get stronger. And if it means sacrificing a little bit of his quickness, I think he'll be an overall more effective player at at that weight and at that size and at that strength than he would have been as a as a quicker guy, but who was being pulled thin and just got destroyed by physical coverage. Um, and so I think Conley can do some really functional things. He can be a big physical route runner who creates separation, who's very frustrating for corners to cover because he's so physical. Jalen Ramsey and him got really chippy with one another during the Jacksonville game. And I think part of that was Conley chucked him a few times. And Ramsey's a physical corner, and he, he was left to wind to the refs. And defensive backs don't like that. And so, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. I think he's got a future as that guy. And before people worry too much about, oh, he's going to get called this stuff, look, when, when players are in press coverage, wide receivers are going to get away with more contact than the corners. Now, he's got to refine it. But I'm not worried about him becoming a flag magnet, doing what he does. He wasn't last year. 
when he didn't have a need, there's no reason to assume if he improves that he'll start getting more calls against him. The A lot of people have asked me what the closest comparison I could think of to Conley would be. And I've given this quite a bit of thought. You know, player comparisons are always going to be imperfect because everyone's unique. And anytime you name a player, you run the risk of them, of people saying, oh, you're saying he's going to be as good as that player? No, you're saying that they share traits. And so for that specific purpose, I don't mind talking about what I think a player comparison would be for Chris Conley. And honestly, after watching how he played last year, I wouldn't say this is the closest comparison in the world, but a comparison that I think could become very valid, especially if he if he refines the stuff he did well last year, would be Dwayne Bowe. And I know that sounds silly because they did not project at all the same coming out. Um, but that is what I saw on film. And it would be interesting if Conley could become a version of Dwayne Bowe, you know, a strong possession receiver who can get a little yards after the catch by just being strong and kind of bullying guys over. Because Conley did that a few times. Who's able to frustrate corners by being physical. You know, Bo was never as good as he could have been. And I don't think Conley's as physically talented as Bo, for the record. I think Dwayne Bo was wildly physically talented. He just didn't quite pull it all together. Um, he's not quite as strong because Bo was a Bo was a brute. But he's got more long speed than Bo, and he demonstrates those same characteristics of really being able to chuck corners off of that him. And he's aggressive about it, just like Bo was. And much like Bo was, he's a pretty aggressive run blocker too. And so there's the comparison that I really saw, and that surprised me because I always was kind of like, well, I'm hoping he'll be more like an A.J. Green type, you know, the, the downfield threat who wins at the catch point but also creates separation because he's fast and quick. Well, he just wasn't quick enough to be that guy. I just didn't see it. One final note on Conley, despite the fact as, that he doesn't have good quickness, he is, and he is a strider. Once he gets going, his speed is really impressive. Once he gets, probably I would say, and it takes a while again, and so corners are able to see it coming and flip their hips and start running with him. But once he builds up his speed, he's got track speed. I mean, he flies. And so that would be a difference between him and Bo. His top speed is considerably higher. It just takes him a while to get there. So he can still get deep occasionally. He actually is, I mean, he beat uh, Aqib Talib deep on one snap where, man, I wish he would have been seen. Um, but I think he was a real late read in Alex through to Kelsey. And so, I mean, I, I, I've hardly ever seen anyone beat Talib deep just because even though he's not the fastest guy, he's just so effective at pressing and redirecting players. But Conley was able to bench press him right off him and run right by him. And once he hit his top speed, Talib was just dusted. So it's an interesting concept, the idea, and this is the ceiling here. Don't get too excited here. Well, maybe get a little excited because I want to. The That Conley could be, with a ceiling, a faster bow, who perhaps is more consistent with his hands because Conley doesn't drop the easy passes like Bo did. You remember, Bo would make spectacular catches and then drop the easy ones. Conley's got better hands. So that would be his ceiling would be, a little faster bow with faster top end speed, some of the same limitations with regards to quickness, but with superior hands. That could be a very, very, very good receiver. Now we'll see if he hits that ceiling because a lot of players have a lot of great physical traits and they never hit that ceiling. We'll see. Conley really improved a ton from year one to year two. So it'll be really interesting to see what he's like year two to year three. We don't often want to keep hoping that players will improve because we've been burned before. But he's one guy, again, when you've got a guy that improves so much from year one to year two, it's worth keeping your eye out to see what he does. A real quick question I had about Conley was over under, this is from Michael Cohen, at Dr. Cohen, over under on Conley for 600 yards and four touchdowns. Prior to reviewing his film, I would have said under. Um, the Chiefs have a ceiling on how much they're going to pass the ball and how they're going to pass the ball with Alex Smith at quarterback, that's just a fact. It's been two of them the course of four years, regardless of who the personnel is. However, after watching his film and seeing some of the stuff he can do functionally, unless we see something crazy like, you know, you know, one of the young receivers just completely blow up and 
surpass him the way Hill did to everyone last year. I think he hits the over on 600 yards and four touchdowns. I just saw enough useful characteristics and so much improvement from year one to year two that I think it wouldn't be at all unrealistic to put him more instead of the 800 yards, six touchdowns range. Um, could be a little more, could be less, but he's definitely got the traits. And again, I'll write more about this in the article, but he was winning often enough in his route that he should have seen the volume. And again, you'll, you'll get to read all about that and maybe rage about it in the comments section um, in the article coming out soon on Arrowhead Pride. And so I think that's enough of a teaser for that particular article. Hopefully you still feel the need to read it. I promise there's a lot I haven't mentioned here regarding his abilities and regarding some of the stuff that I saw on film. So the, uh, the, the next thing that I want to talk about now that we've talked about the receivers a little bit is Patrick Mahomes. And again, that's everyone's favorite topic. The Chiefs took a quarterback in the first round. Woohoo! It's awesome. And we're all very excited about it. And I had a bunch of people ask me mailbag questions, and I thought we could just devote a full segment to him. And a couple of mailbag questions um, just to kind of get us moving. I had Frank Manning at FrankMan81 ask me, um, do I see 2 p.m., you know, Patrick Mahomes starting next year? He said, I mean, honestly, why rush it? So what he's saying is implicitly that Mahomes starting in 2018 would be rushing it, I think. By next year, I assume he means 2018. Um, and then another question I got was, how does Mahomes stack up against Alex Smith in terms of pocket? Play? Oh, this was from Tarkin Trujillo, at Tarkin Michael P. How does Mahomes stack up against Alex Smith in terms of pocket presence? Can Mahomes put up 2015 Alex rushing numbers? So I'll answer both questions directly, and then I'm going to talk about Patrick Mahomes a little bit, because I haven't much here. Um, if you're interested in reading, uh, there are a pair of articles on Arrowhead Pride. One is the film review I wrote on Mahomes prior to the Chiefs drafting him. Uh, when I watched his film at, uh, in college, and I just fell in love with him as a player. And I wrote a film review of him along with like every other quarterback in the draft because I just knew they were going to take one this year. I was right for once. Um, so there was that there, and then there was a arguing with Mahomes doubters post that covers a lot of the issues people have with him, some of which I'll be talking about here, and goes even more on his film. And so I ended up reviewing, I think, 10 or 11 of his college games. And so you can find that at Arrowhead Pride, um, but we'll answer some of these individually and then we'll get into the broader issue with Mahomes. So how does Mahomes stack up against Alex Smith in terms of pocket presence? Light years better. Absolutely light years better. People say that's against college rushers. Here's what I'd say to you. A 290-pound man sprinting at you is a 290-pound man sprinting at you. You're either going to handle that calmly or you're not. And Patrick Mahomes handles it calmly. His pocket presence is part of what made me fall in love with him as a prospect. Um, he played behind one of the worst offensive lines I've ever seen. And that's another thing. When people say, oh, well, these are, these are going to be pro pass rushers, that's true, but he's also going to be playing behind a professional offensive line. I guarantee you he will not be under as much pressure whenever he starts playing with the current offensive line the Chiefs have as he was in college, at least in the 2016 season. No way. Because he was under pressure the majority of the snaps he played. The majority. It, it, it was so bad. It was some of the worst I've ever seen. Maybe the worst. And so this idea that you know he wouldn't be able to handle pressure is just silly because we've seen it. It's on film. He is exceptional at keeping his eyes down the field, at moving to avoid the rush, at moving to clean areas of the pocket, and if the pocket breaks down completely, in breaking outside of the pocket, and all the while he scans the field, scans the field. He was able to buy five, six, seven, eight seconds on a lot of drives. Think of it as what you'd see Ben Roethlisberger do, or you see Aaron Rodgers do it, or you see Andrew Luck do it, breaking contain or moving in the pocket. And he does both. Some quarterbacks don't do both. Some break the pocket and run around outside it and keep their eyes downfield or look to run. Some guys move really well in the pocket. Mahomes does both well, depending on what the pass protection does. That is one area, and look, I'm not saying he's a better quarterback than Alex Smith right now. Don't take me out of context here. Um, but in that area, he's night and day. Complete. He's so much better at that. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted him, because 
pocket presence is one of the most important traits a quarterback can have. Um, with regards to could Mahomes put up 2015 Alex rushing numbers, I don't think so, mostly because he's always looking to pass first. That would surprise me. Um, I mean, he could. He's a, he's a decent athlete. I don't think he's quite as fast as Alex in straight line speed. He seems like a good athlete, but I don't think he's got quite the same. Alex Smith is a fast guy. He really is. It's one of his good traits. Um, but I don't see him ever putting up those same rushing numbers just because he's looking. he generally has his eyes up and is looking to throw. And so I think that's naturally going to lower the amount of rushing yards. Um, with regards to whether I see Patrick Mahomes starting in 2018, and the question is, I mean, honestly, why rush it? Well, from a practical standpoint, I would say... By saying why rush it, you're kind of phrasing the question in a bit to almost make it sound like by necessity you're rushing it if you started with 2018. My rebuttal to that would be you're not rushing it unless you put him out there and he's bad. That's the only way you're rushing it. Any other way, you're not rushing it. Patrick Mahomes should be on the field the second Andy Reid thinks he's capable of performing 95% as well as Alex Smith is in Andy Reid's offense. The second he thinks he's ready for that, Patrick Mahomes should be on the field because he will develop more and develop faster on the field than off it. Maybe even 85-90% to be perfectly honest, and I'm going to delve more into that in a minute. But beyond that, the practical reason for next year is Alex Smith's contract as of as of 2018 is a considerable amount of money. Um, it's just when you've got a guy who's on a rookie deal versus a quarterback who is a veteran and who has been paid like a veteran quarterback. Let's face it, the quarterback market is insane. It's just, it's incomparable. Next year, if the Chiefs are able to get out from Alex Smith's contract, they will save themselves $17 million against the cap. $17 million. That is the difference between, I mean, multiple. You, you You could sign several major free agent acquisitions for that amount of money or one you could you could sign i mean realistically for that amount of money depending on how you structure the contract you could sign a a superstar at virtually any position but quarterback for that amount of money and so it's just too much money the difference is just too great and so that's the reason why you don't want to you don't want Alex Smith starting in 2018 if Patrick Mahomes is ready there's just no reason for it it's just too much money, too much of a difference. And so, which brings me into the, well, when will he be ready? And I've, you know, you've heard a million people say this, that, and the other thing. You've heard me say this, that, and the other thing maybe on other podcasts. Here's what I'll say. It would not completely stun me if Patrick Mahomes took over in 2017. And I don't just mean if it were a disaster of a season. I mean that Andy Reid decided, yeah, Mahomes is ready. He's ready to do this. Now, do I think it'll happen? No, I don't. Um, I think Andy has a slightly higher opinion of Alex Smith than a lot of Chiefs fans do. And I like Alex Smith, and he can do certain things in Andy's offense, uh, particularly pre-snap recognition of coverages, which Andy's offense is predicated on. And I'm going to talk about that a bit in the Chris Conley article on how a lot of the separations you see from wide receivers those are done by the route combinations, not the receivers against single coverage. And so Alex Smith is very good at recognizing pre-snap what coverage they're facing and knowing which routes will win, who's going to be open, and then he adjusts his read accordingly. Um, he's good at that. And until Mahomes can do that at a fairly passable level, he's not going to be able to see the field. And then the question becomes, well, can Mahomes do that? And the answer is, I have no idea. But here's what I'll say. I've heard a lot of people talk about, well, his footwork needs to be fixed before he can play. That's ridiculous. Um, Yes, he needs to be able to do, you know, one, two, three, throw, you know, one, two, three, four, five, throw, those kinds of things. But the idea that he never did that in college is absurd. If you turn on the tape and you watch it, on plays where he had decent pass protection, his footwork was markedly better. The reason there's so many gifts of him running around like a chicken with his head cut off and throwing the football off bounds is he was often running for his life. Now, was it perfect? Absolutely not. It's something he's got to work on. But this idea that his footwork is, you know, just some kind of years in the fixing process, I just, I've, I, I haven't heard anyone 
explain to me why that is, why he, why his footwork needs to be perfect. I've, I've talked about this before, but the reason quarterbacks need good footwork, other than timing of the offense, which again, he needs to learn. If people talk about like his footwork, his throwing motion, that's not that important with a guy like Mahomes because he's already got the power you need in his arm to where he doesn't need to overthrow when he doesn't have proper footwork. Alex Smith, if he doesn't have proper footwork, he tends to overthrow or underthrow because he just doesn't have the arm strength to, to properly put the right amount of touch on the ball and aim it properly without good footwork. He needs to generate enough power to, to, to keep his accuracy. It's kind of like the harder you try to throw a ball, the less accurate you are, right? And so you need to, he needs to generate as much power as possible from his whole body in order to keep his accuracy because he needs to get the proper zip on the ball. Mahomes can put the proper zip on the ball from lying flat on his back. And so he, his footwork is a lot less important because he's still able to throw accurately even when his footwork is poor. And that's something that I've emphasized to people time and time again, that Mahomes was one of the most accurate quarterbacks that I reviewed during the course of reviewing every single top-end quarterback prospect. The only one that was more consistently accurate was Deshaun Watson. And a big part of that was because Deshaun Watson was not making nearly as many tough throws as Patrick Mahomes. Mahomes was sticking the easier throws, and Watson's offense was just a much better offense with regards to protecting the quarterback. And so I would say Mahomes might have been arguably the most accurate quarterback in the class. So when people tell me, well, he's going to struggle with accuracy, well, he didn't. And so why would he suddenly start? The answer I inevitably get is because this is the pros, not college. And my response to that is the ball travels the same way in the pros as it does in college. When I grade a pass as inaccurate or accurate, I don't say, well, that's college accurate and that's pro accurate. I say, no, that's either accurate or it's not. It either would fit into a tight window or it wouldn't. And Mahomes consistently could fit the ball into tight windows, put the ball where only his receiver could get it. That's And while, while there were some plays where defenders dropped interceptions or whatever, there's a reason why Mahomes had a good touchdown to interception ratio. And that's largely because he was able to fit the ball into tight spaces with good velocity, despite not always having good footwork. And so this idea that Mahomes just needs to have that completely revamped, it's just not reflected on his film. Now, could he? Sure, he could. Anything could happen. He could be an alien from Mars. I don't know. All I know is what I see on tape and what the evidence tells me. And I don't know why people would be so fired up to go against what the evidence tells them. And what that evidence says is that Mahomes is an accurate passer. The thing that Mahomes needs to learn to do is a couple things. He need he does need to learn footwork to for drops, because in the NFL, timing is everything, right? One, two, three, step, drop. Uh, one, two, three, step, throw. One, two, three, four, five, step, throw. That kind of thing. He needs to be able to do that, and he needs to be able to learn coverages. If you really look things up online, you'll find that Mahomes had a lot of control over his offense his last year in college based on what kind of coverages he saw from the defense. Um, you, you find that in a uh, Doug Farrar article that was written about him, in an MMQB article that was written about him. He talked about he had full control of the line of scrimmage to change plays based on the coverages that he saw. So it's not like this is some foreign language to him. He had more responsibility than a lot of the more heralded quarterbacks because a lot of quarterbacks in college, they don't get the right to do that. They look at the sideline, the sideline tells them what to do, and they do it, not Mahomes. So that's important to remember with regards to what the learning curve might be. Again, it could take him a while, but it might not take him as long as people think. A final thing to think about Andy Reid locked himself in a room with this kid for it was somewhere between four and six hours when they were trying to figure out if they wanted to draft him. I want you to ask yourself, regardless of what you think of Andy Reid, say time management or clock management or whatever, I want you to ask yourself, if you were locked in a room with Andy Reid for four to six hours and he was drilling you on route combinations and coverages and play packages and, and play calls, etc., what would you come out looking like? Because I would come out looking like a complete moron, okay? And they walked away thinking, we got to draft this kid. That tells me that Mahomes' brain is significantly, and even Andy Reid, he went on Mike and Mike after the draft and talked about that and said, I mean, he just kept impressing us. Everything we had to throw at him, he took. And so these are all, for all these reasons, I got to say, 
unless something goes terribly wrong, Mahomes will be the guy in 2018. If he's not, it means his, he didn't progress the way they hoped. And there could be trouble. From my end, I will be really curious to see what things look like in the preseason and training camp. Again, I fully expect Alex to be the starter when it's all said and done, but it won't surprise me if it gets tighter than people think. And part of that is because of Alex's limitations. Part of that is because I think Mahomes is that good a prospect. I really loved his film. Loved it. But the other thing is Andy Reid does more in his offense to protect his quarterbacks than any other coach in the league. You know, people call him a quarterback guru, and it's not necessarily that he's making his quarterbacks better, but it's that he protects them. He puts them in an offense that allows them to make relatively simple decisions with good route combinations where receivers are open, and all they got to do is make accurate throws on time. Mahomes can do that, I think. And I have a lot of confidence in Andy Reid to formulate an offense around Patrick Mahomes that allows him to be relatively productive, even if he's not great right out of the gate. Because guess what? They've had a quarterback for four years now that isn't great, and they've still managed to have an okay offense. Has it been great? No. Has it been passable? Yeah, it has. And so I don't see any reason why all of a sudden Andy Reid will lose that ability to form an offense. He, he formed a passable offense around, around Kevin Cole. He formed a passable offense around... Um, Mike Vick, when Mike Vick, we all know to this day, just reading defenses was never his thing. Didn't really do it well. He formed a, a, he's formed competent offenses around all kinds of quarterbacks. And so early on, even before Mahomes is reaching his potential, I have a lot of faith in Andy Reid to formulate the offense in a way that allows Mahomes to succeed, at least as far as he's able to. And then in the meantime, we've got him on the field. You've got him learning. I very much believe this, the, the Chiefs are not the Texans from David Carr's time. They don't have a horrible offensive line that's going to wreck someone. They've got a decent offensive line. They've got some real good weapons in, in Kelsey and Hill and a possession guy in Conley. And they've got a great offensive-minded head coach. It's not even close. People always name, oh, we don't want to ruin him. You would struggle to drop a rookie quarterback into a better spot than what Patrick Mahomes finds himself in. So for all those reasons, I think that Mahomes could be ready to start much sooner than anyone else thinks. Um, so now that I've, you know, given my super, you know, my hottest take of the day, let's, uh, let's close off with some mailbag questions before you guys lose all faith in me completely. Um, we'll try to go these pretty quick, man. We're already at 52 minutes. Unbelievable guys. I don't know how this happened. Um, we got a question from Chris, who is one of the Locked On Chiefs guys, uh, at Chris Clark NFL. says, pick one from offense and defense and stay healthy all year. Kelsey or Hill, Houston or Peters. I'm reading it as who would I pick if one of them was going to get injured and one of them wasn't. Not like which one do I think will stay healthy. Um, I'll pick Kelsey over Hill all day um, just because Kelsey is literally one of the best two tight ends in the NFL. He's in a class by himself. He's, I mean, he and Gronk, they're in a class by themselves. Now, there are a few guys, you know, there's some pretty good guys out there too. But Kelsey's unique, and the entire offense is based around his abilities. Um, losing Tyreek Hill would be awful, considering the depth there. But it's not like we got depth behind Kelsey. So I'll take him all day. Houston or Peters? Houston. People have forgotten how great Justin Houston is. Losing Marcus Peters, again, that would be awful. That would be really rough because our defense really relies on his playmaking. But Justin Houston, a healthy Justin Houston, is one of the 10 best players, defensive players in the NFL. And so I would take Kelsey and Houston in that scenario. Um, I have an older question from a, uh, from a Danny D at Chili Rhythm. Uh, been curious about the roles in the secondary this year. How do you see that shaking out? Increased snaps for Eric Murray and Steven Nelson? I think Steven Nelson saw a ton of snaps last year. So the way I see the secondary shaking out is um, I think you'll have um, Marcus Peters and Terrence Mitchell will be the starters on the outside. I think Steven Nelson will be the nickel corner unless someone really steps up and surprises. I think DJ White might step up and surprise and maybe steal that from Steven Nelson. He's the one I'm least sure about. Um, I'm all in on Terrence Mitchell based on what he showed last year down the stretch against multiple good quarterbacks and multiple good wide receivers. 
He's aggressive. He presses well. He's got really good quickness, and he can test the ball just as well as Marcus Peters, with the caveat that he doesn't have Marcus Peters' hands. Because really, Peters could be a receiver. He's a receiver playing corner. And so he's not that good, but he's really great at knocking passes aside or hitting guys at just the right time. I think Terrence Mitchell will do real well. If he just plays at the exact same level he played last year, that secondary is set. Steven Nelson, I'm not quite as sure on. Almost any time you saw catches being given up down the stretch last year, it always seemed like it was Steven Nelson making the tackle, and that's not a good thing when you're a corner. As far as the safeties go, I just don't see anywhere for Eric Murray to come on the field unless he just takes a gigantic step forward or someone else gets injured. Eric Berry and Ron Parker are your starters, and Eric Berry's an incredible player. Ron Parker is an incredibly underrated player um, because he does everything all over the field, and at this point, he does everything pretty well. And He's a wonderful, deep-ranging safety, real great closing speed, really good instincts on the back end. Daniel Sorensen came a long ways last year and demonstrated the ability to cover on the back end, come up and help out as almost a hybrid linebacker, and make some plays in the ball. He's kind of, you know, people talk about being a playmaker. He created a lot of fumbles. He, he caused some picks. He, he did some good things. So I think that three safety group is pretty much set as well. Uh, the beautiful thing about the defense this year is that hopefully you get the guys that were injured last year back in the front seven, and they're bringing back the whole gang from a secondary that no one was able to pick on with much success down the stretch last year. Once they kind of found their 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 group at corner, and that was Peters, Mitchell, and Nelson, they played well against all comers, against multiple good quarterbacks and multiple good receiver groups. They really did well. And so I think that secondary is going to be pretty much exactly what you saw, and I think it'll even be better than last year because you'll have a full year of continuity together. That's always a good thing. And in some cases, you're having years of continuity together. Um, you know, Sorensen's been there for a little while. Now. Marcus Peters and Eric Berry have been playing together for three years now. I mean, this is a good, good thing. Ron Park and Eric Berry have been playing together for even longer. This, this is a good thing when you've got guys that you trust and know the system. And so the secondary, I think, could be one of the best in the NFL this year. If, there's always that if, Terrence Mitchell plays how he played down the stretch last year. Um, another one, we've got three left, I think, and then we're going to call it a day here. From Nathan Carnahan, at N. Carnahan. Does Jamal make the Hall of Fame? Oh, man. I knew I was going to have to answer a Jamal Charles question eventually. Does Jamal make the Hall of Fame? I don't know. Um, overall stats really matter for the Hall of Fame, you know, your total yards and all that stuff. Being the, the career leader in yards per carry is a big deal. And that might get him there, but Terrell Davis just got in, and he had a more decorated career. Playoff success matters, and Jamal hasn't had any. And so it's going to depend on how this time in Denver, ugh, how this time in Denver goes. Um, if he has a couple of solid years there, and you know, even if he let's let's say he comes back and has a couple of superstar years, I think he's got a real good shot. Um, if he doesn't do anything, I don't think he makes it, which I think is just a travesty because I've said repeatedly, he is one of the best football players, one of the best players, athletes I've ever seen and watching him play the game, which is such a privilege. Um, that said, does that mean I'm rooting for him to do well in Denver? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. As long as, I mean, you know what? I'm all for Charles rushing for 2000 yards next year, as long as the Broncos lose every game. <laughs> um, you know, then fine. But I just don't see him as a Hall of Fame guy at this point because people are really hung up on overall stats, not greatness over a short period of time. Um, and then we've got from Dylan Miller, at Chiefs Crazy. Hey, I'm crazy about the Chiefs too. Most crucial position group that needs to improve this year. Most crucial position group that needs to improve this year. I would say the defensive line. And a lot of that should hopefully come from the fact that Alan Bailey is back from injury. He's not great, but he's steady and he can play. He's solid, especially against the run. And I think that'll help because that's where they really struggled down the stretch last year. They struggled with him in too, but we've seen enough from him to know that he's demonstrated the ability to be a strong run defender in the past. And so that should help. Um, I've talked about this before. Um, but I think Benny Logan is a marked upgrade from what we saw from Dontari Poe last year. If you watch the film, it's not close. I wrote a pair of articles, one on 
Poe before he left to free agency, and one on Logan when he was signed. And it's really not close. It's just not even close. Poe just was kind of average last year and struggled against the run. And so I think that's going to really help the defensive line out. Chris Jones hopefully doesn't have a sophomore slump, continues to develop, works on his pad level, maybe works on his recognition in the run game. And then overall, just, you know, the young guys, Joaquin Nunez-Rochez just being in another year, getting a little bigger, a little stronger, hopefully, um, that should naturally improve the defensive line. But I think that's where we need to see the most improvement. Um, because, you know, people have written about it, the defensive line kind of got whooped versus the Steelers in the playoffs. And one thing that I noticed is on a lot of snaps that I watched, um, Justin Houston and Chris Jones were getting a lot of attention and the rest of the group couldn't step up. And I know, I know Houston is technically not a lineman, but he ends up playing, you know, the rushing four kind of thing a lot of the time. So the defensive line is really that needs to improve everything else. Hopefully, you know, you stay the course guys get healthy. It should be all right. And we got one more mailbag question, and then we're going to call it a day. This is from Blake at NFL Draft underscore Casey. If Alex Smith has a career year, what is his value? Could they trade him for a first-round pick or two seconds? Well, um, a career year, you know, for Alex Smith would mean not just statistically, but, you know, the, the team being successful and all that stuff. Let's say Alex Smith, okay, so career year, so he throws for, you know, 4,000 yards and 30 touchdowns, Well, you know, and the team goes on, wins 12, 13 games. Yeah, he's going to have a lot of trade value. People underestimate how valuable quarterbacks are in the NFL. And right now, Alex Smith's value has never been lower because the last memory people have of him, including the NFL at large, is that rough, rough Pittsburgh game. And the fact that they took a quarterback to replace him. And so now he can rehabilitate that because the NFL is a, is a what have you done for me lately league. And so if Alex Smith comes out and has his best season as a Chief, and again, he's had some very competent seasons as the Chiefs quarterback, much more competent than a lot of quarterbacks across the league. If he does that and he plays very well, then yes, he's got a significant amount of trade value. You have to, you know, Sam Bradford got traded for an arm and a leg despite everything else that was going on in Philadelphia. Um, now, is is Alex on Bradford's level? I don't know. They, they've had such different careers, it's hard to say. But the Bradford trade showed how desperate teams are for a quarterback. And you could now that was a little bit of a unique situation because the Vikings felt like they could really compete. And so it's kind of you got to find that team that has a good roster, but is short on a quarterback. And, you know, some of those teams just took a quarterback this year. And so they might not feel as needy. That said, if Alex Smith has a career year in 2017, I think you could potentially get two for two second rounders or a first rounder for him. And that would be, you know, the best case scenario for the Chiefs. Well, the absolute best case scenario is that Patrick Mahomes plays just absolutely lights out right away, comes in as a franchise quarterback immediately. And then it doesn't really matter what kind of trade value they get for Alex Smith. Okay. But if uh, if Mahomes isn't ready to go this year, um, and all signs point to he's not going to be the guy this year, um, the best case scenario is that Alex Smith plays lights out. The team does well, maybe goes on a playoff run, uh, does all kinds of things well. And then when the season's over, Mahomes is ready to go and they're able to get good value for Alex Smith. And I do think that if that happens, especially if it goes down that way, I think Alex Smith is going to be remembered maybe a lot more fondly than he was thought of during his time as a chief, because he really came in, he solidified a quarterback position, not with brilliant play, but with competent play when they needed it. And he he did. Andy Reid was the main reason, I think, and, and, and John Dorsey was a huge reason. But Alex Smith played a huge role in helping turn the Chiefs around from a laughing stock. And I think people forget that. In 2012, this team was a laughing stock. Like, I'd be driving around in Minneapolis and they'd be talking about the Vikings. Like, well, at least they're not the Chiefs. <laughs> and it just drove me insane, you know, and I'd get road rage and slam into someone. Um, but that's not the case anymore. 
And Alex Smith did play a part in that. And I think especially if he goes out that way and, you know, and he, you know, they recoup those two second rounders on his way out the door, people are going to look at that and say, okay, so we traded two second rounders. We got five years of decent overall quarterback play, especially the last year. And then we got those two round first second rounders back. It's like, hey, that all worked out real well. And I hope he gets remembered like that because Alex Smith, by all accounts, is a good guy, hard worker, team player. And so I really hope things end well for him. And so at least as a chief. Now, at the same time, I hope they end quickly because that means Mahomes has come on and he's the future. So that is what we've got for you today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the slightly longer version of the podcast. Uh, Keep an eye out for that Chris Conley article that should be coming out soon. And I'm also planning on perhaps in doing a few extra podcasts over the course of the next two weeks because training camp is coming up and I've got a lot of film reviews to do. And I don't know if I have enough time to write all of them. So I might do a couple of them by podcast only, which may be tough to do because we don't have gifts and that kind of thing here. But I think it'll be a lot better than nothing. At least I hope so. That's my that's my goal, my lofty expectation. Well, at least I'm better than nothing. So I hope you enjoyed this. We will see you next time, and thanks for joining me today. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway, and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.